Hi, I'm Joaquin Evans, co-senior leader of Bethel Austin. I pray that Jesus ministers to you through today's message and that you are blessed deeply. If you're encouraged, please like and subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of our weekly sermons. Enjoy the message. So I want to talk today about faith. Woo. That's a, I mean, that's a pretty good topic, right? We're in church talking about faith should be, should be a, a given. This shouldn't be hard ground, right? But uh, I want to talk to us a little different aspect of faith, and I want to talk about sustaining faith. And I want to look at a few examples that, you know, maybe are a little different than we would focus on normally. But we see a couple times in scriptures where Jesus actually commends people for their great faith. And it's not always what we would think. You know, Jesus didn't commend or call Peter's faith great when he stepped out of the boat and walked on the water. If you know that story, it actually went a little different. I mean, he got out of the boat, walked on water, actually like took some steps. How far? I don't know. But one step is more than I've done. That's pretty impressive. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus, when he began to fear and sink, right, he called out for help. Jesus was like, oh, you're so close. But their faith was lacking. I mean, what about when the disciples offered to call down heaven or call down fire from heaven on the villages that didn't receive Jesus? I mean, I don't know if I met somebody that truly had faith to call down fire from heaven. I don't know if I'd be weirded out or impressed. But I got to say, that takes a measure of faith to believe, to actually believe it. Like I could call down fire right now and it's going to happen. Yet again, he didn't commend them for that. When the 72 were sent out and they saw demons cast out and people healed and all these things and they came back rejoicing for all that they had seen, Jesus did not comment on their great faith, but he said, don't rejoice because of these things, but because your name is written in the book of life. So there's lots of examples even of Jesus talking about ye of little faith. But what are the examples that Jesus actually commended people for their faith? We're going to look at at two. I can honestly only find two where he was actually commending them or commenting on their faith being great. Now, there's others where he said your faith has made you well, different things like that, but where he actually commended these people for their faith. So we're going to read through them. We're going to start in Matthew 15 with the story of the Canaanite woman. I want to read through the whole thing, and then we're going to go back and unpack it a little bit. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Matthew 15. We're going to start in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to a district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, I want to go back and unpack this a little bit. A couple things are important to note. One, this is a Gentile woman. She's not Jewish. Imagine yourself in this story. How many parents do we have here? Right? She wasn't asking for finances, for breakthrough. She wasn't asking for blessing. She wasn't even asking for herself to be healed, but she was asking for her daughter. The heart of a mother crying out 
for her daughter. She comes to Jesus and his disciples crying out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Her first experience, her first encounter with Jesus and his disciples was being ignored. Anybody ever felt ignored? Anybody ever felt unseen? And his disciples came and begged him saying, it wasn't just like a suggestion. They were begging him saying, send her away. Can you imagine being this woman? Your heart to see your daughter set free. And you come to Jesus and his disciples in the first, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is plagued with a demon, please. And they just keep walking doesn't say anything you know he hears you and nothing and then his followers come and beg him saying send her away they were rejecting her anybody ever felt rejected And then he finally addresses her. Again, imagine yourself in her shoes, crying out your heart. You're pleading for your daughter. He ignores you. His disciples are like, get rid of her. Send her away. They're trying to dismiss her, reject her. And then finally, Jesus himself turns to you, looks at you. And his response is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're not qualified. You're not included. Anybody ever felt disqualified, excluded, unworthy? And her response to this is beautiful. But she came and knelt before him. Some translations say she came and worshiped him. Imagine this mother crying out for her daughter. Jesus first ignores her, doesn't say a word. They're just ready to keep walking by. Then her disciples reject her. They're saying, send her away, get rid of her. And then Jesus himself looks at her and says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Like you're not part of the in crowd. You're not part of the inner circle. You're not worth my time. You're not part of my calling. My mandate. But she falls down in front of him and just worships him. he responds and says it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs I've traveled a bit I've connected with some different cultures I've never been in a culture where it was okay to call a woman a dog just saying he called her a dog. She's now insulted. He's likening her to a dog. Completely insulted, degraded, disrespected. Yet her response is, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, Great is your faith. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus knew what was in her heart the whole time? 
Do you think Jesus already knew what he was going to do? Okay, you weren't so sure about that one. I believe he was. This encounter didn't catch Jesus by surprise. Jesus wasn't truly, I believe, insulting this woman. He wasn't ready just to dismiss her and send her away. I believe when she approached and was crying out, Jesus knows the power of a heart of a mother who's believing to see her daughter deliver. Jesus knows the faith that was moving in that woman to even approach that crowd as a Gentile woman in the first place. Jesus could feel the faith pressing in. And he said, oh, this is going to be a good one. Jesus never missed an opportunity for an object lesson. Jesus was not ready to send this woman away, but he knew what was active in her already and was drawing it out, not for her sake, but for the disciples and for those around. But listen, here I believe is the key in this story is she would not be offended Let's rewind this again. He did not answer her a word. She was ignored. I'm not seen here. I'm not appreciated. I can't get so-and-so's attention. You don't have time for me. Anybody ever struggle with love? Let's be real, I have. Felt unseen, felt ignored, right? I have struggled with that. The disciples themselves, this is his inner circle. These are like, you know, there's Jesus and then there's the 12. Send her away. She's being rejected, dismissed, send her away. Anybody ever dealt with or struggled with feeling rejected? They don't really want me there. Devil ever lied to you with that one? Did you? I saw that person after service and they didn't even say hi to me. I waved and said hi. They looked the other way. These are really common day-to-day stuff. The devil will try to get in there and work on us. He knows the pressure points. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You don't qualify. You're not part of the inner circle. You don't meet the prerequisites. You don't measure up. Anybody ever struggle with any of those? Right? Right? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Anybody ever felt insulted? But this woman's heart refused to be offended. She refused to take up offense on facing these things that all of us face throughout our lives on a, probably on a pretty regular basis if we're honest. We may not entertain them. We may be maturing and get past them. We may not let that seed take root, but the devil will come and lie to us. That little whisper, those accusations, those little things will try to get in and we've all experienced them, right? But her heart posture was, I don't care about any of that. I'm not gonna get offended because I know who he is. I know who he is. He, I don't care. You trying to ignore me? I don't care. I know who you are. Your disciples try and reject me? I don't care. I know who you are. You tell me I'm not qualified? I don't care because I know who you are. Try and insult me? I don't care because I know who you are. Separate message, but if we know who he is, we will know who we are. And if we are standing in our identity in him, knowing who he is, knowing who we are, guess what? It's very hard to get offended. And her response in all of this is, I know who you are. And she fell down and worshiped him. And through all of that, 
Jesus put her through, his response is, oh woman, great is your faith. Now imagine you're in the place of Jesus. You know everything. You know everyone. You see all the bickering and backbiting and all the the rumors and you know everything that's going on with everybody, you're God. You just, you know all the weaknesses and pressure points that your children fall into all the time. He's coming, looking for those of faith. When this woman was approaching, I believe something in him was leaping. Like, yeah, she's one of them. She's one of them. Here's one. And I'm going to draw all the thing. And I bet all the disciples, I bet those 12, all of those things that he drew out in that encounter, they had all struggled with and been struggling with. Hey, Jesus. When you come into your kingdom, can I sit at your right hand? I want to be included. I want to be on the inner circle. I want to be seen. I want to be valued. But this woman who refused to take up offense earned the proclamation of great is your faith. And Peter walked on water. And still got rebuked. <laughs> I, uh... James and John, they're ready to call down fire from heaven. He's like, you're of a different spirit. You don't even get it. You have faith to call down fire from heaven and you don't even get it. You don't understand. You're, you're all excited about casting out demons and seeing people get healed and sick, but listen, you're rejoicing in the wrong thing. Now, don't get me wrong. Casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, that's what we're called to. That takes faith. We celebrate that. We're a house and a community, a culture of testimony. Why? Because that's God's goodness and his power manifesting every time that happens, and we want to see that. But what I want to focus on right now is what is the faith that stirs Jesus's heart where he will commend or respond man your faith is great what is the faith that is going to sustain us day to day because I've seen a lot of powerful ministers I've seen a lot of powerful anointed people that see all kinds of stuff but don't have these basic elements right here I see a lot of ministries get torn apart. I see a lot of people fall away from the faith or walk away from ministry because they fall into these traps right here. I want us to do all of those things. Walk on water, raise the dead, cast out demons, heal the sick. But at the end of all of that, I want us to be a tight family, unoffended, kneeling at his feet, worshiping him, eyes on him. I'm not, and I'm not talking about Bethel Austin. When I say we, us, I'm talking about the church global. I'm talking about the bride. Jesus himself said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. How much is the church fighting against itself right now? How much have we let offense and different things and bitterness and everything else come in and we're pointing fingers and accusing and man, Satan can take a vacation because we're really good at doing his job for him. But what would it look like if the church global refused to be offended? Not the organization not the leadership, but every individual member refused to be offended. You can't reject me. You can't ignore me. You can't offend me. You can't insult me because I know who he is. And I'm going to stay right here at his feet, worshiping him. Y'all can do whatever you want to do. You can backbite and you can rumor and accusations and all that stuff, but I'm going to stay right here at his feet refusing to be moved, refusing to be offended because I know who he is. All right, you guys ready for the next one? 
We're going to go to the story of the centurion. It's in Matthew 8 and also Luke, I think, 7. Yeah, Luke 7. I'm actually going to be reading the account out of Luke here. but <clears throat> This is another example of great faith. So again, I'm going to read through it all. And then, uh, then we'll go back and unpack it. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too, or in the New King James other translations, for I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who were who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is a little side note here, a little plug for the Israel trip. So in the beginning, when the elders were sent to Jesus and say, hey, this guy loves our our nation. He built our synagogue for us. We'll go to Capernaum and we will see the synagogue. It's actually, it's been rebuilt over it, but you can see the base of the synagogue that was from the time of Jesus, this black basalt rock. And there's still a portion of the step exposed leading into the synagogue. I'm giving a a little away for you guys, a little preview for those of you that are going and hopefully a little you know, tug for those that are on the fence whether you're going to go or not. So on that step is the same steps Jesus would have taken to go into the synagogue when he read from the scroll of Isaiah. When he was in ministering in that area, he would have gone into that synagogue. So you can literally step on the same exact step that Jesus used. There's a whole lot of, you know, conversation debate of where certain things took place in Israel. No, this miracle happened here. No, it happened over here. No, this is the site. No, this is the site. This is the... But that's one place where you know Jesus set his feet and you can set your feet right there. Come to Israel with us. Okay. <laughs> Go, going back into this story, I want to dig in at verse eight. So he says, for I too, or I also am a man placed under authority. I found that line interesting because why was he saying I also, or I too am a man under authority? Because he recognized that Jesus was under authority. There's a key here. He wasn't just recognizing that Jesus had the authority to do something but he recognized his authority came from being under authority. And he explains, he goes further and unpacks that. For having soldiers under me, I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. So he understood, he's a centurion, he's a soldier. So he knew a soldier of Rome, when he's telling his soldiers under him to do something, it's not by his own authority that he's saying it. But he's under the authority of Caesar. 
He's under the authority of the emperor. So when he says something, he realizes he's simply a conduit for the authority of the empire to flow through him. So that when he says something, it's not him telling a servant to go or to do this, but it's the same as the emperor saying to go or to do it. Now, this is his framework for faith. This is his understanding. First of all, understand the context. One, I'm not Jewish. Two, I'm a Roman soldier that's actually part of the occupation and oppression of the nation of Israel at the time. But the elders had already given him, you know, uh, a good referral. Say, hey, 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 it's okay. This, he's one of the good ones. He loves us. He built a synagogue for us. You should do this for him. But he understood. Wait, I'm not even worthy to have you come to my house. Humility. But then an understanding of authority. He said, I also am under authority. And I know all you have to do is say a word. And it's going to be done. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Can you imagine making Jesus marvel? (laughs) I cannot imagine saying or doing something that made Jesus marvel in a good way. (laughs) You caught that. I'm sure there's a lot of things that I've done or said where he's just like, did you all hear that? But where he just like draw, dropping open like, what? My goodness. And he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The key to the centurion's faith was understanding authority and authority structure. So two keys here, sustaining faith for the Canaanite woman was refusing to be offended. For the centurion that made Jesus marvel was understanding authority structure. He, he understood that he had to be submitted and under authority to actually operate in authority. And he understood that when he was operating in authority, that when he was saying something, that it wasn't him saying it. It wasn't his own merit. It wasn't because he was, you know, had worked it up. And and my my guys listened to me because I've built a good rapport with them and I've shown them that I'm worthy to be followed. No, he understood that in the empire, if he said something to any of his subordinates, that if they defied him, they were defining, def, defying, thank you, the emperor. Do we fully understand authority structure and the authority of the kingdom? Are we fully and truly under authority? Do we fully and truly understand the authority that we're under and our ability to speak on behalf of a king? All right. We'll look at a couple examples, talk to you guys about this stuff for a little bit. Some of this stuff... This is a message that I've shared a number of times. Kess and I, we led a discipleship training school for, for some years. And I realized, like the Lord highlighted this to me when we were discipling people and working with people. Like these two things are like some of the biggest stumbling blocks as well. Some of the things that will knock us out of the race the fastest are taking up offense and unforgiveness and not understanding authority, not being willing to be submitted to authority not understanding what it is to be submitted and then being able to like yield or, or wield, sorry, authority. 
Because there's a whole lot of anointed, gifted, powerful people out there. There's a whole lot of people out there that can go out there and do the stuff. But to have people that are willing to submit to an authority structure and to understand, hey, my word's only going to be as good as my measure of submission to the authority above me is a rare thing. We need more of that in this generation. A little story about that school. You know, we would spend hours and hours and hours in worship and in the presence of God. I'm not exaggerating. Some of you have heard this before, but we literally had days where we'd go into our worship room. It's supposed to be scheduled two hours of worship. See, we're still warming up here, guys. We've got stuff to build up to. We'd have two hours of worship scheduled, and then we were supposed to go into a day of classes, and we'd have international teachers and leaders from all around the world come and speak to our small group of students. We were really blessed. But we had days where the presence of God would show up so powerfully, we just could not stop worshiping. Two hours was not enough to worship the King of Kings. And literally no exaggeration, we had days where we started at eight o'clock in the morning and didn't finish till six o'clock in the evening. Part of our discipleship program was work service. And we'd have the students, you know, scrubbing toilets, washing dishes, cooking meals, you know, working on the property where the base was, doing all these things, right? Regular maintenance type of stuff. And what we were always trying to encourage the students is, listen, if you can learn to take what you experience here in the worship room out there and cultivate that while you're scrubbing toilets, you're going to be just fine. If you can carry the presence while you're washing dishes or you're serving food or you're washing the the ministry vans or anything else, you can lead a revival service. You can minister under the power and anointing of God if you can carry his presence in the most menial task and have personal revival going on. That took humility. That took an understanding of authority structure to fully walk in that. So we're on outreach one year. We're staying at this big base and they have different ministries coming and staying there. And so it was our students hanging out after hours with another ministry school students. And and they were just hanging out. It was in the evening. And, you know, very natural. They start to talk about the different programs and they're kind of comparing notes. And so the, you know, other group was telling our students about all the stuff that they do and everything and what a great program it was. And then they asked, you know, what ours was like. And our students start to explain to them. And they're like, at the end of it, they're like, what? You had to wash dishes? You had to clean cars? You had to scrub toilets? Wait a minute, you paid to go to that school? I said, no, we didn't have to do any of that stuff. Our school taught us how to do real ministry. (laughs) I was so proud of our students. They didn't get offended. They didn't get defensive. They didn't say anything. They didn't respond. Not offended. The next night they were hanging out again. And I think the other group was like, hey, let's pray. So they said, okay, let's pray. And our students just did what they knew to do. Heaven just comes down in the place. And they start to prophesy. They start to pray. They're getting words of knowledge. This other group of students who are trained to do real ministry are now sitting there marveling, shocked by seeing what our students are operating in. Now listen, I'm not like saying that that ministry is bad or anything else, but my point is that these young people who had chosen to submit themselves to a season of being surrendered and submitted under authority, being in the presence of God, living in a community and a lifestyle where they all had roommates, they were all working shoulder to shoulder, they didn't have any privacy, any free time, any space. Intentionally, it's a pressure cooker. Why? Because you're going to rub up against each other and have lots of opportunity for offense. But when they could learn to be submitted to authority and work out their conflicts and their issues with one another and not have an offended heart, but to stay at the feet and knees of Jesus and worship him only and keep their eyes focused on him, they learn how to access faith. 
I'm, I'm blessed. I actually grew up with a somewhat of an understanding of some of these things. Even though I didn't grow up as a believer, my father, where'd he go? Dad, you're trying to get some barbecue. Somebody go check on him. I knew it. I knew it. He's sneaky. I didn't even see him. So my dad, he, he ran a martial arts school for a number of years. And, and I started working for him um, when I was about 12 years old. And I'd grown up my whole life doing martial arts, but this was a new dynamic. Now my father's a master instructor. It's his school and I'm working for him. I'm 12. I worked for him from the time that I was 12 all the way up with some gaps in there, traveling, living in different places, but all the way until I was about 24 years old. I had reached the level of fourth degree black belt master instructor under my father. Now, parents, any of y'all have 12, 13 year olds? Some interesting stuff happens around that age, right? Yeah. Anybody have teenagers, 18, 19 years old, early 20s? Also an interesting time of life. Through those seasons of my life, I was working for my father. And in Taekwondo at the school, you, it's like the military. When they're talking to you, you stand at attention. You bow, you say, yes, sir. Now listen, it's not idolatry. It's not some weird kind of form of worship. It's like the military standing at attention or saluting an officer. It's the same thing. But as a young, punk, rebellious, going through, you know, all the hormonal changes and everything else of puberty and everything else and being all out of my mind, I learned that all that got put aside when we were in the studio. Any conflict, any dynamics, anything that my father and I might have been dealing with at home. And he was a great dad. He's still a great dad. But all of that got checked at the door. Because when I was on that floor, when I was in those four walls, it's Master Evans. And if he was talking, I stood at attention. And regardless of what he said, if I agreed with it or not, yes, sir. Now imagine a 20-something-year-old also a master instructor. I'd moved back in with my parents, a whole long story. I'm living under their roof as a young 20-something-year-old. I'm also a master-level instructor. I was, you know, accomplished. I was competing internationally. I was doing things, you know? So I had some ideas of my own, how things should maybe possibly be done. Feeling like I was an adult now. Can't tell me what to do. I know stuff. I'm grown. But in the school, yes, sir, it was Master Evans. Also through that upbringing, I learned that we always respected and deferred to age. Didn't matter what the rank was. So as a master level instructor, if I saw, so this is something that we practice regularly. Last class of the evening, we'd all pitch in and clean. So we're, you know, cleaning mirrors, sweeping the floor, doing all that kind of stuff, cleaning the school. And I'm, I'm a master level instructor. I had aspirations to go to the Olympics. Didn't work out, but I was, you know, that was where my headspace was. If I saw somebody, didn't matter if they were a white belt, brand new student, but if they were older than me, and it did not matter if they were older than me by a year out there sweeping, I would go up and I'd say, let me take the broom from you. And I would take the broom and I'd sweep. Because there was an understanding of honor and respect of an authority structure. It didn't matter what belt was here or how many stripes I had here. If somebody had experience and age and wisdom on me, that always superseded this. We learned honor and authority structure, how to be submitted to it, how to respect it, how to honor it. I dealt with a lot of people that were questionable people in martial arts. But I also had to learn to, in the right settings and in the right way, honor and respect their rank and their position. I think we could learn a little bit from that. 
I think there's some offices that maybe we see people occupying and it's very hard for us to respect the people. But are we going to accuse and speak negatively of the people? Are we going to honor the office? Can we honor the office and the authority that the person has? Because something that I learned in martial arts was, regardless of the individual, there was an, a, a heritage, there was a lineage, there was a history that built up to that person receiving what they received to sit in that place. And I learned to respect and honor the system. You might not be the nicest person in the world, but if you've gone through all of this, you've paid your dues, you've done all the training, you know all the techniques, you know all of this stuff, and you earned your rank, I, know, I might know who you are outside, but I can respect the rank knowing the system, knowing what you've had to go through to get to where you are. Anybody in the military? few people I have not served in the military but I have friends that have talking to you guys and hearing some of your stories you learn that you understand the institution and and understanding rank in office regardless of the individual now listen I'm not saying that we excuse sin I'm not saying that we excuse poor character I'm not saying that we make excuses for anybody but what I am saying is can we understand and honor authority structure can we submit to authority because here's something that happens I'll be submitted to you until I start seeing flaws good luck with that if I'll only surround my people, or surround myself with people that I don't see any flaws in, I'm going to be very lonely. We all have our flaws. We all have our issues. For somebody to be in authority, they don't have to be perfect, but they do have to be submitted. They do have to be surrendered to the authority above them and the, the authority structure that they're a part of. I'm out of time, but I was going to go into the life of David. So I'll just briefly, but look into it. Think about it in this context. As a young boy, he was anointed king. There was already a king on the throne, right? He, he could have had every right to go and say, hey, I'm king now. Saul, move over. But he didn't do that. He faithfully served Saul. Saul then turned on David. He got jealous of him. He tried to kill him. He, you know, Jonathan warned him. He ran away. Saul came out to seek David in the wilderness. And, and actually, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. Who was trying to kill him? A lot of people would have said he was justified. We know the story, right? I'm going through this super fast. This is like the fast forward version here. You know, cut off a corner of his robe while I was sleeping. And then it says his heart struck him. Far be it from me to lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. Saul was a jerk. <laughs> Saul had, had um, I don't even know the right word that I'm looking for here, but Saul had wronged David in every way. In every way. Again, I don't have time to go into all the things. Go and read the story. And David was already anointed king. But when he looked at Saul, what did he see? And what did he declare? The Lord's anointed. He understood authority. And I guarantee you, when David was looking at Saul, he wasn't looking at Saul, but he was looking at the God in Saul, the God that had, had set up this kingdom. And he knew if he wanted to carry this kingdom on, he couldn't dishonor or disrespect the king that went before him. But if he wanted to step into the kingdom and as king rightly, he had to honor the one that went before him. 
in that whole story when Samuel's anointing David in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, you know, you know the story, Samuel's going through all this stuff and like looking at David's brothers and all this, but this is what God says to him. Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now I heard Danny Silk say this. I don't know where he got it, but I heard it from him. So he says, we often judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. See, when it comes to me, I'm willing to look at my heart. Oh, I know my heart. Oh, I know I did that, but that's not what I meant. I know I said that, but that's not what I meant. I'm going to justify myself because I knew my heart. I knew my intentions. But if you do it, no, but you said. Oh, no, but you did. And I'm quick to try and judge somebody else by their actions. Opportunity for offense. What about even authority? Can we look at people and see the Jesus in them? My last example is a new believer. I went into ministry pretty quick and I was part of this church and I ended up becoming good friends with the pastor's son. Well, over some time, my friend, the pastor's son, started to confide in me things that were going on in the pastor's life. And he had some issues. But listen, the Lord had called me to go to this church. I remember my brother even had this prophetic word and seen this stuff about me being there and submitted to him and how it was going to launch me into something, all this stuff. It's a long backstory, but... I knew I was called to be there and I knew that I was receiving something from this man in his ministry. But then flaws started to be pointed out to me and I knew I had a choice. I could, I could cut and run and I could say, well, because of this and because of that, I know what's going on. I know some of the behind the scenes stuff and, and leave. But I felt convicted by the Lord. Did I call you here? Did I say there was something? And I had to learn to look past those things and see the Jesus in him that I wanted. There's a reason why God had called me there and to be submitted to that authority in that house. It had some issues. But you know what? There was also an anointing. There was also a gifting and a calling. And that house is what launched me into missions. That house is what connected me to the ministry gateways beyond. That ministry is what connected me to my wife. I could have missed it if I got offended when I saw the hypocrisy in him. Or if I would have only looked at the action or the outward instead of the heart. Last thing, we're going to, everybody stand up. Jesus himself in John 6 was speaking about being the bread of life. And we know the story. He, he starts talking about communion, essentially what the covenant that he was going to institute and eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it was a hard thing and many turned away. It was, people didn't get it. And this is what Jesus said. Do you take offense at this? And there's, that's, that's in uh, verse 61 but I'm not going to go into it at all because of timing. Jump down to verse 66. John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were offended. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He saw Jesus. Not the other stuff that was going on. He didn't take up offense. He didn't, wasn't stumbling on his ability to grasp or understand even what was happening in the moment. But said, 
It's too late, I'm all in. There's no offense. There's no stumbling block. There's nothing that can remove me. I know my place. I'm gonna stay at your feet and I'm gonna worship you alone. Have the words of eternal life. You are the holy one. I wanna encourage us today. That is the faith that will sustain us. That is the faith that will keep us together as a family, as a bride of Christ, as a church globally. That's what will keep us together in friendships, in covenantal relationships, in families. That is the faith that the world will look at and say, you're a strange and peculiar people. There's something about you. And I believe that's the faith that moves Jesus' heart and makes him marvel. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that you're very heart, being God himself incarnate in the flesh here on the earth, refused to take offense. Even when you were being crucified, your response was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And in your own prayer, when you're teaching us how to pray, you said, ask, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lord, teach us how to forgive. Teach us to live unoffended. Teach us to surrender and submit to you fully. Teach us to see you in others and to truly look at the heart and not the outward appearance. Lord, don't let us be swayed by circumstance or situation and protect us from every fox from every fiery dart of the enemy, every lying and accusing voice that would try to come in and disrupt or divide your house. But keep us wholly focused on you at your feet and worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So listen, if, if you... Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.